Good evening, church. Today's scripture reading is taken from Nehemiah 2, verses 9 to 20. Nehemiah 2, verses 9 to 20. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I, rose, then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by the night by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burnt. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sanballat and Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Gesham the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thank you, Charlotte. Shall we just bow our heads as we commit this time to the Lord in prayer? So gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that is so freely available for us. We ask of you now that as we receive what you have to speak to us, may our ears be receptive, may our minds be attentive, and our hearts be obedient to what you have to say to us. Holy Spirit, come as we invite you to be in our midst. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So finally, at long last, we find that Nehemiah was on his way to the city of Jerusalem. Finally, after praying for five long months for a breakthrough, 
we find that the Persian king, Artaxerxes, eventually approved of Nehemiah's leave of absence, and together with an armed escort, as well as providing the resources needed for the rebuilding project, Nehemiah was now able to begin his journey back home. Now, no description was given, though, of his trip from Susa to Jerusalem, a journey which takes about maybe 800 miles or so, and this will probably take about two full months. But we find that without a doubt, his entourage consisting of officers of the army and horsemen was bound to attract attention upon his arrival. And so we find that as we come into this passage in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 9, that we find that among those who were present, though not necessarily there to greet or to welcome the envoy, were a group of despised, a group of people who despised the Jews and very much wanted to prevent the city from being rebuilt. And this teaches us that for sure, that every time when we do the work of the Lord, you'll find that there will always be opposition. Be prepared for it. Because for the simple reason, the devil, the enemy, he will never be satisfied with what we are doing. Whenever we want to do the things of the work of God, the moment we are obedient to what He wants us to do, the devil will never be happy. The devil will never be satisfied. And he will always raise up people, enemies, opponents, to stop us from doing what God wants us to do. And so we look in verse 10. And verse 10 here lists down the names of the enemy. In fact, it, 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 here it lists out two of the names, as Sembalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite. So let's get to know them a little bit better. And so as you can see it up in the screen, Sembalat, well, it's a Babylonian name. And this perhaps tells us that this man was perhaps a native from a place called Beth Horan, about 12 miles northwest of Jerusalem. But shockingly, you will also discover later on a report that was given that this man, Sembalat, was closely related to Elishib, the high priest. And this was because there was due to an intermarriage between both of their families. Shocking, isn't it? That someone from the high priest, a Jewish high priest, mixing around with a Gentile. Tobiah, on the other hand, was a Jewish name. Now, although this name Tobiah meant Yahweh is good, we are told very clearly that he was an Ammonite. And being an Ammonite, he was a sworn enemy of the Jews. And you can read all of this in Deuteronomy chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. And like Sembalat, Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 4 also tells us that this man was also closely related with the same high priest. And he was, in fact, a favorite among the many priests there. But besides this too, if you go down to verse 19, you find that there's a third person by the name of Gershon, the Arab. Nothing else is mentioned about him, but all we know that this three person, this three men, upon seeing Nehemiah entering into the city and well aware that he intended to seek the welfare of the people of Israel, wanting to seek the concern for the things of God, they were greatly displeased, and so they made the plans to disrupt the rebuilding project. 
Now, the first thing that you would think Nehemiah would do upon his arrival, after, you know, waiting for so long, when the opportunity came and he was able to now enter into Jerusalem, you would think that the first thing that he would do was to straight away get down to business. I think if Nehemiah was a Singaporean, this is pro pro probably what he would be doing. Yeah, with, with, our, <coughs> with our attitude of wanting to get things done, Nehemiah would probably do this. But you find that no, this was not his agenda. Because if you look with me to the passage in verse 11, it was recorded for us that for the next three days, that the moment that he might enter into the city for the next three days, before he rallied the troops, he did nothing. He did nothing. And perhaps the reason was this was because, you know, maybe after a long and tiring and difficult journey, remember I told you that it takes about two months to travel, they didn't have airlines and so forth, he needed time to rest. He needed time to be refreshed, to catch his breath before the hectic work would begin. Or perhaps he felt the need to pray. He needed to commit this task to God. After all, the fact had already been established, isn't it, on two occasions, that this man was definitely a man of prayer. Hence, we shouldn't be surprised that maybe he was doing just that. Now, these, though these two possible reasonings may be viable, the text before us offers us a third possibility. And the third possibility was this. Why he didn't do anything for the next three days was simply because he was organizing a secret inspection. He was meeting up with the leaders of the local community just to get a sense of the situation, to see the extent of the work that needed to be done before proceeding forward. You see, the point here is simply this. A good leader doesn't immediately rush off aimlessly into his work. Rather, a good leader patiently gathers important facts before planning and presenting his strategy. And as the words of Proverbs 18 verse 13 tells us, that if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. And so we find that for Nehemiah, there was no point in making any big announcement challenging the people to rise up and to build the wall without first understanding the gravity of the task at hand. How could he challenge the people if he himself didn't know the extent of the work that is to be done? That is why we are told in verse 12, and verse 12 informs us that what did Nehemiah do? That for the next three days, as he ins as he prepares himself for the work, he took some men on this secret inspection to survey the situation. It is told here that he says that I arose in the night and I and, I and a few men with me. Now, I want you to notice the timing in which Nehemiah inspected the place. He did it in the darkness of the night. Why? Why? Simply because he was aware of the opposition to the rebuilding work. He knew that there were opponents 
who didn't want him to do this work that God wanted him to do. And so what he did was, he didn't want to start a commotion. He didn't want to arouse his enemy. So he wisely chose to analyze the situation in the dark of night while everyone was asleep. After all, we are taught from the very beginning, verse 9, isn't it? That both Sembalat and Tobiah, they were not too keen. They were not happy upon Nehemiah's arrival. And so the principle here is simply this. A wise leader knows when to plan, when to speak, and when to get down to work. And I want you to also realize that in his inspection, realize that Nehemiah didn't take the effort to go the whole entire uh, uh, wall. You know, it would definitely take too long. He didn't make attempt to go around the city wall because this would prove to be quite impossible considering the piles of debris that was all around. Furthermore, it was unnecessary. Why? Because he only needed to examine an adequate portion to get that first-hand knowledge of the challenge that is before him. So verse 13 tells us he started at the valley gate and the valley gate was situated at the west side of the city and as we are told that along the way he stopped to inspect the walls and as you can see up in the screen these were the places that Nehemiah went as he inspected and these were the, 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 the various gates that they had to rebuild now I want you to know that this Hebrew word inspect simply means to examine so what did Nehemiah do on this secret mission? As he inspect, we are told that he carefully probed in a way that a medical doctor would examine and diagnose the cause of an infection of a person. And that's what Nehemiah do. He clearly and carefully examined the situation. And we are also further told that there was a point that in this investigation where the damage was so great that verse 14 tells us that he couldn't proceed any further. Why? Because the horse that he was in was not able to maneuver about. And with all this information that Nehemiah gathered, we are told that eventually, as he gathered all the people together, he honestly concluded what Hananiah had reported to him, that indeed, Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates burn. And the leadership lesson here is that leaders, we must not be ignorant and live in a dream world. When the situation is bleak, we must honestly say it is so. We must face the facts honestly and accept both the bad news as well as the good news. So, this was, this was the first thing that Nehemiah did. He went on a secret investigation. And as we move on to verse 17, we are told that with the vital information that he gathered over the night, what he had collected, and now for clear understanding of what is needed to be done, it was now time for him to mobilize the troops to get down to the task. And so what did he do? He assembled all the people together 
and he didn't hide the bare facts. He simply told them that indeed, yes, Jerusalem lies in ruins. He told them about the fact that this was the bare truth regarding the conditions of the walls and the gates. But he didn't stop there. He didn't just tell them, you know, uh, 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 this, he didn't just honestly tell them of the situation, but he also shared with them what needs to be done. So after telling them the truth of the condition of the war, Nehemiah next shared with them his bold vision that the walls and the gates of Jerusalem can and must be rebuilt. And so we are told that immediately after affirming that the city was in this great mess, Nehemiah followed up with this rally cry. He says, come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And in this stirring call of Nehemiah, notice that, you know, he didn't give any impression that he was the saviour, you know. He didn't give any impression that, hey, I'm here to, I, I'm here to be the one that will, that will ensure that the walls, that I, I will be the one that, that will ensure that to fix this particular problem that we are facing. No. We find that as in his prayers in chapter 1, as also found here in this section, he used the pronoun we and us and not you and them. So simply put, as a Jew, Nehemiah identified with his fellow Jews. He did not put the blame of the sad state of the city on them. He did not blame them and say that you are the cause of all this ruin of Jerusalem. No. He was willing to own the problem as his own and was willing also to do something about it. The question then for us is this. What about us here in the church? What do we do when we know of someone who fails or someone who falls along, who sinned, who did something wrong? What would we do as a church, as a body of Christ? Do we carry on with what we are doing? Do we treat it as though it is none of our business? Or do we really see ourselves as a body of Christ, the church of God, and that we are willing to support each other when someone fails? And for sure, we all will fail at one time or another. We are only mere humans. We are not perfect. Look around you, you'll find some of your, our fellow members. Where are they? Why are they not coming today? Perhaps some of them are facing some problems. Perhaps some of them are going through a difficult, a lean period. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to just sit back and say, that's not my problem? Or as a body of Christ, are we going to do something and reach out to them and say that, hey, I'm here for you? Because as the apostle writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, Paul says that if one member suffers, all suffers together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. So let this be a challenge for you and I. That as Nehemiah saw, he identified himself with the people. Let us also identify ourselves with the rest who may not be here and share with them the same problem and do something about it. 
The next, the next challenging task then of Nehemiah was perhaps the more difficult one. After spelling out the seriousness of the problem, you know, after rallying them to say that, yes, we have to do this, what he needs to do now is really to rally the remembrance to be on his side. And this is not an easy task. This is not an easy task. Because, you know, if you have been there for a very long time and nothing has been done, you tend to be, you know, in this status quo mode. Your mentality tends to be very negative. But nevertheless, Nehemiah knew that his call was to challenge the people to renew the wall. So what did he do? Once again, we are told, if you look in the passage we meet to verse 17, once again, Nehemiah, the first thing he did was to remind the people to, to be concerned for the things of God. Because he told them in verse 17 that the city need not remain to suffer in derision. Let's be concerned for the things of God. And when you're concerned of the things of God, we can do something about it. And not only that, he further pointed out to the goodness of God and to what God had done for him so far. Verse 18 says, And I told them of the hand of God that had been upon me for good and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. In other words, he gave a summary of how God had led him over the last five months. That as he prayed over the situation, asking God to change the heart of Artaxerxes, and when Artaxerxes did change, how God had, had, had given him the bonus to ask for the three requests, and the king himself answered all that Nehemiah had asked. What an amazing testimony. So he related to the people all of these things. Now, it must be said that to the credit of the Jewish nobles, they overwhelmingly accepted the challenge. Because we are told in verse 18, in unison they responded, let us rise up, let us rise up and build. And I want us to focus on this particular verse for a moment. Because you find that what's very impressive and what's worthy of note here was that the people did not, you know, did, did not wallow up in self-pity. You know, they did not remain accustomed, as I mentioned, to their status quo situation and insist that, ah, nothing can be done now, you know. They didn't remind Nehemiah, hey, Nehemiah, you know, we tried to do this before, you know, because if you read in, in Ezra chapter 4, when Ezra came, he attempted to rebuild the wall, but unfortunately the work stopped. They did not hesitate to say, we tried before, it didn't work, so why bother to do it again? And I'm afraid this is a familiar sentence we often utter and say to ourselves. <coughs> you know, I share with you this testimony. <coughs> back then when Pastor Gilbert and I, we were back at Church of the Ascension, you know, I, I recall the time when I was uh, tasked to do the Christian education. <coughs> and one of the things that I thought God was leading us was to challenge the people, let's do this series on discipleship called Master Life. I'm sure many of you have heard about this and you have done it before. <coughs> and I remember that when I first came here, I wanted to do Master Life. And I hear the command on the ground, Pastor, why do this? We have done this before, you know. 
And that was the same what happened when I was back at Church of the Ascension. The people came to tell me, Pastor, we did this before. Why are we doing a discipleship program? We are all seasoned Christians. Why do this again? But I said, let's do it with a difference. And I challenged that I think at that time was 10 or 12 cell groups. You know, I rallied them. Let's do this. Unfortunately, at the start of it, there was, I think, about two cell groups who resisted, who says, no, no, we, we, you know, they, they choose not to want to follow what the church wanted to do. But eventually, they reluctantly followed. And I share with you this testimony that eventually, at the end of it all, the two cell group who didn't do it came up to me at the end of the Master Life program and said, Pastor, yeah, great that you introduced this, that we need to redo it because it's a fresh look at what it means to be a disciple again. So why am I sharing this with you? I'm sharing this with you because sometimes we can always let the baggage, you know, the past experience that we have gone through and say that oh, it will never work. But bear in mind, God is always doing something new in our midst. He can use something, an old method, but nevertheless, still do a work in our lives. So just let's not have this mentality to say, I've done it before. Let's not have the past, the experience that we have of our failures to say that it will never work. Let's trust in the Lord and together, like in the voice of the builders to say, let us in one voice, let us rise up and build. And as I mentioned from the very beginning, that whenever we do the work of God, we will always face opposition. And here as we end off in this last section, we find that after Nehemiah had successfully rallied the people, he had one more task to handle. He now had to stand up against the opposition and effectively deal with them. Because no sooner that he got the support of the people to rise up and to build, we are told in verse 19 that Sembalat, Tobiah, and now a new threat in the form of Gershem, they joined forces in discouraging their effort. Verse 19 tells us that they jeered they despise Nehemiah and the Jews. Jeering here is basically, you know, kind of like looking down, you know, making fun of you, you know, saying that, ah, you, you can't do it. And what was it that they were jeering? It, it says here that they were jeering Nehemiah, saying that, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? So let's break down what they were saying for a moment. And you find that the first part of this jeering was kind of like saying that, you know, the efforts of the Jews were laughable, you know, that, that, that they, this cannot be done, you know, that they are weak people. They have no expertise in such a project. And the truth is, they are true. They are correct. Because the, the people there were not builders at all. They were just normally people. They had no experience in building a wall. They were just a bunch of local residents. And as for the second thorn, are you rebelling against the king? Wow, this is a dangerous allegation, isn't it? To make a claim that Nehemiah was, you know, instigating a rebellion 
here was a total lie because we know that the king did give Nehemiah permission to rebuild the walls. In this world that we, you and I live in, we know how rumors and fake news can be so dangerous, how rumors and fake news can influence others to think differently. My eldest daughter almost got conned recently, you know, but she managed to realize that it was a scam. Fake news, they can lead us astray. And here is a possible case in point. And if you think about it, if the word, if this fake word did indeed leak out that Nehemiah and the company were rebelling against the king, the walls and the gates of Jerusalem would not be rebuilt. But worse, what will end up is that there will be war and bloodshed. And the reality for us is this. Church, bear in mind, that just about every one of us here, we will face some forms of discouragement, jeering, and insults. As Christians, we will face them. We will, we will come across them, and especially from our non-Christian friends. And especially in this movement of the LGBT, and the government is going to do something drastic. I, I'm going to prepare all of us. Government is going to do something drastic. And if we as a church, we stand up against it, they are going to jeer at us. They're going to make fun at us. But what are we going to do about it? Well, the encouragement for us is this. We can draw encouragement from the fact that Jesus himself encountered jeering, insults, and discouragement while he was on this earth. You find that on many occasions, isn't it? He faced ridicule from the crowd. He faced ridicule from the Pharisees. He faced ridicule even from his own family members. And if Jesus faced them, we shouldn't be surprised if all these things are thrown at us. Because to be a disciple, Jesus tells us what? We have to take up the cross daily and to follow him. And taking up the cross, which simply means facing all of these jeerings and taunting that will be thrown at you and I. But more importantly, how then did Nehemiah dealt with his enemies? Well, in conclusion, you find that he could apply any one of these three ways. He could have debated with them, you know, he could challenge them and, and argue with them, or he could take the easier choice of simply ignoring the problem. You know, sometimes we find that this second option seems to be the wisest thing to do. But yet, at the same time, it can also mean that we are simply avoiding the situation because that problem will still be around. So indeed, what did Nehemiah do to address this issue? Well, we are told in the passage, he dealt with it head on. When the problem arises, he didn't hide behind it. He didn't sweep it under the carpet. He dealt with it immediately and straight on. He wasn't afraid to confront the problem. Verse 20 tells us that he replied to the three men that rebuilding the wall was God's work and that God would indeed prosper in the effort. And then he further added that they had no part in the matter at all. So a leader must know how to rally his team despite of 
the opposition. And so as I close, I want us to reflect over these few questions. Two groups of people. Firstly, if you are a leader, if you are a leader here in All Saints Church, whether you're a cell group leader, whether you are a ministry head, or whether you are, you know, discipling someone, you are a leader. Ask yourself this question. As a leader like Nehemiah, do you have this burden? Are you excited for the work that God has assigned to you here in the church? Like Nehemiah, are you concerned for the things of God? That when you hear a situation, a problem that exists, are you willing to do something about it? Or are you going to take a step back and just not do anything? Secondly, as a leader like Nehemiah, are you patient enough to gather up the necessary facts, the information that is needed before planning what to do? Or are you the gung-ho sort, straight away, let's go and do the work? As we, are, as we have seen, Nehemiah didn't do that. He wisely took a step back, reflect, saw the situation, get a, 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 a sense of what was going on, and then he made his plan. And thirdly, as a leader, are you willing to motivate and address any problems that might pop up? Because as a leader, we must be willing to face problems, and problems will come up. But are we bold enough? Are we bold enough to deal with it? Or are we afraid and not want to be the confronting sort and choose, you know, to just put it aside? Leave it to the next leader to, to handle it. A leader must be one that's willing to address the problem. So if you are a leader, reflect over this. The next group of people are those of you who are not leaders. Perhaps you are, lack of a better term, a follower. What do you do? As a follower, will you listen to what the leaders of the church have to say? And when the vision has been shared, would you be willing to share in the load of this burden? Would you upon hearing what God wants to do? Do you therefore cling back to the past, cling to our baggage, or do we desire to see God doing something new and say, Lord, I want to let go of what's holding me back? As a follower, are you therefore willing to put your hands to the plow? As we reflect over all these things, as Minghui and Ken comes up. We're going to sing the response song. And let's make it a prayer that the consuming fire of God will give us this passion to rally what God wants to do here in our church. That God desires, just as God wants the walls of Jerusalem to be rebuilt, God wants our church to be built and to grow. The question for us, are we willing to rise up and build? May we. Let us pray. Let's bow our heads as we close our eyes, as we commit ourselves afresh to the Lord. Father, we thank you for 
your word here that is found in Nehemiah, that as this man Nehemiah rallied the people to come alongside him, to rise up and build the walls and so fulfill God's purpose. We pray, Father, that as your word has been spoken to us, that we do the same in wanting to rally ourselves in support of the vision that you gave to us here in all saints. Father, we acknowledge that it's not just a matter of hearing or knowing what you want to do, but Lord, it is doing it. It is putting our hands to the plow and moving forward. And so, Father, we pray that you help us to be willing to do our part, to put aside the baggage of the past. And Lord, we know what they are. Past hurts, past failures, the struggles that we have gone through. Lord, you want to do a new thing. Help us to remove this baggage. Help us to remove all this negative attitude, negative feeling of that we want to be status quo. Help us to move ahead afresh because you are indeed doing a new thing in our midst. I'm just going to spend a moment right now and as I'm going to challenge and invite you, perhaps for some of us here, you may be longer members in the church. You know what I'm talking about. Perhaps you know what are the baggage that I'm referring to. Perhaps some of you are even struggling in this baggage. I want you to right now, if the Spirit of God is speaking to you, would you just surrender it to the Lord and say, Lord, remove this baggage. We want to build this church. We want to move this church. Whatever it is, surrender it. Father, we thank you, Lord, that indeed your word has spoken to us. Your word has challenged us. And may we, like the people in Nehemiah's time, may grant us this passion for the things of God. And let us together in unison declare, let us rise up and build. And so, Father, as we depart from this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and remain with each and every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.